Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. Today I'm talking to Anna Dreva from the Stockholm School of Economics. And we are going to be talking about her work on replication markets. And first of all, Anna, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Could you explain a little bit what a prediction market is before we go into replication markets? Yes. So, I mean, prediction markets can function in different ways, different types of contracts. But a, sort of the typical contract would be one where there would be uh, there is a well-defined outcome and typically a binary event. Let's say, will uh, Trump uh, become re-elected in 2020? So this type of contract is worth, uh, say, $1 if he becomes president again and $0 if he does not become president again. So this contract can be bought and sold at different prices. And with some caveats, uh, the price of such a contract can be interpreted as the probability that the market assigns the event. So there, there are studies showing that prediction markets can outperform, say, election polls in predicting um, who will become president. And why? Because if you have an election poll, you answer the question, who will you vote for? Who are you likely to vote for in the election? So it can be hard to get large representative samples that truthfully say who they will vote for. So in the prediction markets, I'm not betting according to who I want to win, but I'm betting according to who I, who I think will win. And uh, so what I, who I think will win would be a function of uh, my uh, the type of information that I've been uh, uh, exposed to, like from uh, media, family, friends, uh, sort of it will depend on my beliefs about the world. So prediction markets could uh, potentially aggregate a lot more information than election polls. So that's why prediction markets could perform well. So we were interested in applying prediction markets uh, to scientific outcomes. So already 10 plus years ago, uh, my co-authors and my husband, uh, we started talking about whether we could add prediction markets to replication studies. And this was before there were lots of replication projects going on. And this was very inspired by a paper by Robin Hansen called Could Gambling Save, Save Science? Could Gambling Save Science? Where he proposed basically prediction market mechanisms uh, for research allocations, which is not something we've looked at whatsoever, but sort of were inspired by when we read the paper a long time ago. So the idea with the replication market then is that uh, you predict whether a replication study will find a significant result in the same direction. Exactly. And then the contract is pays $1 if it finds a significant result and nothing if it doesn't find a significant result. Exactly. And then you can trade that contract. Exactly. So, and, and this is not without uh, problems in the sense that many people dislike this uh, definition of replication success. So in many of these replication projects, we and others say, well, the study replicates. If in the replication we find an effect in the same direction as the original study with the p-value less than 0.05 in a two-sided test. So this is a binary variable, and that's why some people dislike it. Some people dislike it also because it's based on a p-value. Um, but what we can see in some of these replication products where we have super high statistical power is that this replication indicator correlates very well with other replication indicators like relative effect size, uh, base factor, uh, other types of Bayesian analysis, small telescopes approach, prediction intervals. Um, so in that sense, I think this binary indicator works pretty well. 
And importantly for us, uh, we can set up prediction markets for this binary outcome. So instead of betting on who will become president, you bet on specific hypotheses that are being replicated. And how long have you been, been working on this? So how long has your prediction market on replication been running? So we started working on this in 2012. And we've been running prediction markets since. I mean, not all the time, but once in a while when there are replication projects to which we can add these prediction markets. So your, your approach is to not run a lot all the replication projects yourself, but you kind of are in touch with researchers who run replication projects anyway, and then you you have a prediction market where people can bet on the success of these replication projects. Exactly. I mean, so a lot of it is thanks to Brian Nosek and his co-authors. So Brian Nosek led the big open science collaboration 2015 uh, project where 100 studies in psychology were replicated. So we emailed him after having read a profile of him in, uh, I think it was science in early 2012. We emailed him with the idea of running prediction markets on the replication studies. And he then said that, sure, this sounds interesting. Let's, let's ask the community of researchers involved in replications whether they're fine with this. And they were, so that's how we basically got started running this. And since then, we've added these prediction markets to other replication projects in psychology, uh, also in biology now with the Brazilian Reproducibility Initiative. Um, we've added it to replication projects where we have done replications. And uh, we're also involved in the DARPA SCORE project, uh, predicting replication outcomes for 3,000 studies where just a subset of these will actually be replicated. So lots of different projects going on. And at the end of the day, I don't think, I'm not sure we learned super much from just one project, but from like the, the accumulated uh, uh, data we will eventually have. Um, that sounds great. And what is kind of your, your plan for using this information later on? So if you can predict replication success very well with replication markets, what, what do we get from this as a scientific community? How, very how good question. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not super sure what we do with this. So, I mean, that's not really how I wanted, why I wanted to study this in order to figure that out. I mean, in the sense that I thought it would be interesting to see whether there is some sort of wisdom of crowd. Is there something systematic about studies that replicate versus fail to replicate that researchers can can figure out. Uh, if so, that's interesting. And it's interesting to try to see what are these uh, characteristics? And do we need prediction markets for these? Or can we like, find them anyway? Um, we do some exercise in one of our papers, PNAS 2015, where we use prediction market prices to back out the probability that the hypothesis is true at different stages of the testing process. I mean, the p-value doesn't tell you the anything about the probability of the alternative hypothesis being true, but that's what the positive predictive value does. So we do an exercise, and I think that's that's uh, sort of, for us at least, <laughs> an interesting exercise. But it's, it's not clear to me what we will actually do with all of this at the end of the day. I and mean, some of my co-authors, like Colin Kammer, has said, like, well, we could maybe have prediction markets as part of the uh, review process in journals, not to outcompete having a uh, few reviewers, but as a as a complement to the normal review process. 
I think that sounds super so, interesting. <laughs> that, that, that sounds that sounds super interesting. So yeah. then maybe maybe the idea could be that if if prediction markets are negative about a project, then you might want to demand another replication approach before you can publish it. Or, or exactly. What, what is so? Is that the direction that that you think that Elisa Collins? Yeah, one has to get some journal to agree to this <laughs> first, and that has not happened. But I mean, another thing I think is uh, worthwhile to think about is, or for me at least, uh, I mean, there are so many potential replications to be done. What, who should choose? Who, what should we choose to replicate? So one project that we're right now uh, planning and will do very soon is a decision market project. So decision markets work similarly to prediction markets in many ways. So you bet on when, whether studies replicate. But instead of us replicating all studies, we're going to randomly pick a few studies to replicate. And then we're going to also use a decision rule so that we give extra weight to studies that, for example, have very low prediction market prices, sort of that the market does not believe in, and also studies that have very high prediction market pri prediction market prices, so or decision market prices, meaning that the market believes in these studies. So it would be, I mean, decision market sort of you can decide which type of uh, sort of decision tool you want to use, uh, and then go ahead and use that and decide to decide which studies you want to replicate. That sounds sounds very interesting, and in particular, I mean, right now there's not a lot of people doing replication projects because it's very unclear how you can publish them well. But if you have a project of a paper where that is quite important, but where maybe the market is not not very clear if it replicates, this probably makes it much more attractive for someone to try to replicate it because it would be a much bigger result to kind of just find a contrasting result to, to something. That is quite important. Yeah, I mean, so so like a, a nice decision rule I think to explore would be to put a lot of extra weight on studies that have prices close to 50. So the information value from such replications mm -hmm. would be the highest. And and these markets would are still incentive compatible in the sense that all studies have positive probability of being picked. Uh, but I, as, I said, as I said, you give extra weight according to your preferred decision rules or, or the one you choose. But the, who knows, like in uh, in five years, whether what we will be doing then. I mean, research interests change, and <laughs> so I don't have any long-term plans. That's what definitely is a very interesting approach to replication. Um, now I have a question that goes a little bit away from the replication market itself. Um, and you also do a lot of experimental research yourself and has working on the replication part markets kind of affected you in a way and how you design your experiments? So do you, have you learned something on what an experiment needs to look like in order for it to get a high chance to replicate? Yes, so I mean, definitely. But uh, I'm a little bit of a slow learner in the sense that I think that so now I'm a little bit embarrassed or in lack of a better word for me not having updated what I'm doing faster. So what, why am I saying this? So I mean, I'm the first to admit that that I I think that I am very super likely to have false positive results on my CV. So I worked on candidate genes in the past, and the, like one study uh, published in 2009 
we did a study with 100 men and we took a DNA sample of these men and we looked at two specific uh, dopamine receptor genes and we wanted to link these genes to risk taking. So we didn't uh, sort of go on a fishing expedition. We only analyzed the DNA samples uh, for these two genes and we report the results for both genes in the paper. So for one of them, we found no statistically significant correlation with uh, risk taking. And for the other one, we found a statistically significant correlation. So we report both of these things in the paper. So the problem with that paper is that we have basically zero statistical power. So the p-value here is completely meaningless. Even if you're trying to be Bayesian about what, like our data, we just have too low power in order to say anything. So that's extremely likely to be a false positive result. Um, I'm, I'm sure I have other false positive results. So, I mean, what, what character, why do I think they could be false positive results? Well, we probably have too low statistical power in some of these studies. Um, we definitely fork in the sense of the garden of forking paths. We let the data decide how we analyze it. Um, so sort of, there are results that I don't really believe in anymore. I mean, I'm not saying that I believe that there is nothing going on necessarily in some of these, but I just don't find the evidence super compelling. And sort of during these years, and that's why I'm saying it takes some time. I mean, some of these papers are not super old. I mean, I wish I could say that they're all pre-2012 when we started thinking about prediction markets, but they're not. Um, so I think what, I, what I've slowly learned is that for experimental studies, I really think we should do pre-analysis plans. I think they're super non-costly to do and they really tie your hands. I mean, when you do a lab experiment, you know what, what's gonna happen in the sense that it's not like you do a complicated field experiment. You will get the data you want, so you can decide ahead of time how you will analyze it. And then there's just no room for p-hacking, no room for forking, and you will end up with reliable, sort of more reliable results, I think. Taking statistical power seriously, I, I feel like as an experimental economist, so the experimental econ crowd has not talked much about statistical power. When you read most experimental papers, you have no understanding for why the specific sample size was chosen. And I think that's a problem. So there is some sort of low-hanging fruit here, and I think that's great. Yeah, so, so your main learnings were kind of thinking more about statistical power and being stricter about doing pre-analysis plans. Yeah. Um, and then I also think thinking about the problems with generalizability of the results. Like we have a study where we um, let men and women look at ads, basically. Either there's no woman on, in the ad or there's an ad with a woman who's fully dressed or an ad with a woman who is in uh, underwear or a bikini. And we wanted to see whether being exposed to these women or half-dressed affected the uh, risk-taking competitiveness and math performance in both men and women. So the pro we basically find nothing. We find a little bit, I mean, some suggestive evidence of an effect for men on risk-taking, which is in line with some previous literature, but uh, it's not super strong evidence, to say the least. But on, I mean, how much do we know about the generalizability of these results? Maybe this is because of the specific photos that we used. If we would have done it differently, maybe there would have been an effect. So I think 
I mean, increasingly, I'm sort of asking myself, what have we really learned from this exercise? Yeah, so it's definitely also important thinking about how how close is your application to the real world and or your experiment to the real world and how much can you generalize? Yeah. Um, and another thing, so the replication market team, it's, it's a very, uh, the replication market is a very big exercise and you have a very large team working it. How is it like working in such a large team? Great. <laughs> I think it, I think it works out uh, surprisingly well, sort of. So how do you, do you kind of coordinate the work? Do you, are you, do you separate yourself into kind of different groups working on different things? And do you meet with the whole team a lot? Um, no, we, we don't meet. I mean, so like the current one that we're planning on PNAS studies. I mean, some of us decided, like someone, some of us decided, let's try to do this. Then we contact our previous co-authors here, or like that we've done similar things with and say, this is now what we think we should be doing. And they say, yes, let's, let's try to do it. And then sort of someone takes the lead and uh, goes through papers. And in this case, it was me and two PhD students here, Ben and Lee King. And we basically went through a bunch of PNAS studies involved uh, Minus Johannesson and Felix Holzmeister and uh, some others from the Innsbruck team, Mike and Jürgen. And then everyone else. So, so but it's, it's, there is some sort of clear, there is some division of labor. And then we email about the important uh, big questions. I can't remember. I mean, to be honest, I can't remember details of how we, when we started working, how we did it. Then we had more Skype calls. So we would actually talk about things sort of semi face to face. Now we don't really anymore. I think we just communicate by email and that works out well. And so it has also like evolved a bit once you had some experience working with each other and the project was a bit more mature. Yeah, but I mean, I have so like one of, I have a close co-author, Yiling Chen, uh, who's a computer scientist at Harvard. I think we've Skyped once or twice. Uh, that's it. And we work now for many years and work super efficiently together and we just email. But we never really talk. That's uh, very interesting to hear. And I have like Eric Ullman in Singapore. I don't think we've ever talked. And uh, he's a close co-author. I mean, he is super efficient. You should talk to him about how he runs his projects. I would like to learn more about how he can be so efficient. We, we can try to contact him. <laughs> or like crowdsourced uh, science projects. That's what he's super good at. Um, but I, I don't know. For me, I guess talking is a bit overrated. <laughs> Oh, it's interesting that this is very productive just working with emails um, and so you have worked quite a bit on projects related to replication and kind of the credibility of science how did you get get into this area what got you interested in this yeah I mean that's also a bit hard to now try to backtrack because um, I guess many things were happening at the same time but so, so I told you already about this uh, dopamine receptor gene paper that I don't believe in. So I mean, the, the one of the big so that paper has citations, which I really shouldn't have as many citations because it's probably not a uh, true result. But sort of I I mean I think the biggest problem for me with that result was that I really believed in it. So I wasted I think a lot of money and resources and time, especially my time, trying to 
trying to replicate that and trying to see whether I can find it in other samples for other risk measures, etc. And uh, I mean, with some flexibility in the analysis, we could find some evidence here and there. But now looking back to that is not compelling whatsoever. So I, I think I wasted so much time on those projects. So at some point, I guess I was realizing how much time I was wasting on something that was just noise. Uh, and I should have realized that earlier, but okay, no, no need to be sorry about that now, maybe. Um, so I was, that was happening. Um, at the same time, we started thinking about power posing. So power posing, when I read that paper, and I think it was in 2010, when it came out in Psychological Science, I found it super interesting. So I was interested in gender differences in risk taking, competitiveness and other things. And here comes this paper that says that uh, if you if you hold the high power pose for a minute or two versus a low power pose, this can increase testosterone, decrease cortisol, and increase risk taking. Fantastic! I mean, my co-authors and I, in particular Eva Ranehill, we were then we we talked about this and we're like, this is awesome. We can try to see whether we can we can do this and close gender gaps in important economic behaviors like risk taking, competitiveness, etc. So we set up a, a study where we wanted to see whether we could uh, find the same effect for risk taking and also extend it to risk taking in the loss domain and willingness to compete. So the needed investor learn measure. So what so we, we basically wanted to do a study to see to to test whether it worked in these other domains too. So Eva started collecting data and this was in Zurich with Roberto Weber and, and uh, uh, to psychologists, they started collecting data uh, on uh, like the, a modified power posing study. So we did some changes to the original setup, changes that we thought were good, that would lead to sort of stronger effects. But we also made the study experimental blind. So uh, Eva had to run once one participant at a time. So it took a long time. So at the end of the day, we, we ran, we had 200 participants in our power posing study. Uh, that was compared to the 42 participants that were reported in the original paper. We also collected uh, saliva samples that were analyzed for testosterone and cortisol. And at the end of the day, we find no effect of power posing on testosterone, cortisol, or risk taking. We found an effect on feelings of power and that many other groups have since then failed to replicate. So sort of that was happening around the same time, and this was happening at the same time as uh, we were starting to think about prediction markets in psychology. So uh, we published this uh, failed replication um, in psychological science in 2015. And uh, I guess somewhere around this time, I just started thinking a lot more about replications. I mean, many other people were also thinking a lot more about replication. So more replication projects were being done, etc. But then, so there were these different, uh, I mean, for me, the replication focus came from different strands of my research. So the dopamine receptors, uh, power posing, prediction markets, and this all led to sort of more interest in replications for me. That's very interesting. So basically you, you did never really kind of plan to work on, on meta science or like replication. It came more from you had projects that you were interested in where replication became an issue and then you kind of got interested in, in this kind of area. 
Yeah, I, I, I guess that's, <laughs> that's what happens. Interesting. And um, to conclude the interview, I would just like to ask you a couple of questions on how you work in general. Um, so do you have a daily kind of work routine and how does it look like if you have one? No, I wish I had. Maybe I should have. I would like to learn how to have one. So I feel like I'm wasting a lot of time sending emails, but at the same time, I realize that emailing is my main sort of communication form with co-authors. <laughs> I need to do a lot of email. I don't have any daily work routine. I try to get rid of as many emails from my inbox as possible because most of them are research related and then to work on papers. I always feel like I'm lagging behind and disappointing co-authors. So I try to be faster. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't like to have a million things to do in the sense that I want to make the ball rolling, roll over to my co-author instead. So I don't mind if anyone else is being slow, but I don't want to be slow, sort of. Um, so I feel like that pressure is, <laughs> is over me during the day, uh, but it doesn't hang over me once I stop working. I mean, I do go home and think about research, but it's not like it's uh, like the work stress dominates my life. I don't, I rarely feel stressed. How do you come up with ideas for new projects? Do you kind of really brainstorm or do they just come along while you're working on other stuff? I, I, yeah, I cannot brainstorm. It never works. So I don't know how they come up, but I'm guessing they come up as sort of during other projects. I mean, you read something, you think about something, and it's, you talk to someone and then something evolves. And how do you decide which ideas you kind of want to pursue? Uh, I mean, in men so uh, my my closest collaborator is Manus Johannesson. So, I mean, we talk a lot, we email a lot. So I think we sort of always have this ongoing discussion where we come up with new ideas and stuff. And I think he is he's more skeptical and more realistic than I am. So it's good when we do this because he would be like, well, that's not going to work or that's not going to be this, yeah, for some reason, we shouldn't do that because I'm otherwise more inclined to just start new things. And it's also fun to start new things and realize that for various reasons, it's not gonna, you're not gonna be able to do it. Like you can't get the data or. So I don't really know. I I, mean, I couldn't, I feel like I, I should maybe do some more introspection here, but I don't, I find it hard to know which, how, how the, this decision process is happening. And how many projects are you working on at the same time, approximately? I, I don't know. Um, 15, maybe? Something like this? Yeah, that's... 20? Okay. I mean, there are different stages. So there are these projects that have been around for a long time where we've done the data collection, we've done the first draft, but we haven't reached further. There are others that are already submitted. There are others in the idea stage. There are others where like data collection is ongoing. There are these various things. And I, I mean, I'm lucky to have many co-authors who are taking the lead on things. So where I play a small role. Um, so then sort of that role is typically then important for the pre-analysis plan stage where we design the study. And then at the eventual write-up and then other people are doing other things at other stages. Uh, it's a it's a mix depending on the project. I mean, the PNAS project has already taken a couple of years, <laughs> so I think it's good to not realize this 
when you started that it's such a slow process. Uh, okay. Um, so this this is the end of the interview. Thanks so much for taking the time despite working on so many projects. Oh, thanks. <laughs>